0: Welcome, everyone to Check Yourself, a health and wellness podcast aimed at helping you live your best and healthiest, whatever that word means to you, life. Uh, This program is brought to you by the Community Health Education Center and Salem Health Foundation. And just to give you a little bit of background, the Check provides the latest healthcare information not only on our campus, but also out in the community. We serve a variety of community groups in both Marion and Polk counties in Oregon. And today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Yodalva. Dr. Yodalva uh, completed his internal medicine residency from Michigan State University in East Lansing. Uh, he subsequently went on to a fellowship on cardiovascular medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. During his final year of fellowship, he served as chief fellow of the program. So, in essence, Dr. Yudava is a cardiologist, and in our conversation, you know, beyond what is obviously, you know, he's clearly an expert in the field. However, what impressed me the most about him wasn't his credentials, but his approach. When talking about the advice that he gives to the patients he converses with. You know, there was no emphasis on being perfect or on imagining that we all must be sort of automatrons engaging in, you know, all of us doing exactly the same behaviors to achieve exactly the same result. Instead, he really encouraged looking at each person as its own kind of ecosystem. Each person is a whole world to approach. And when he gives advice, it's extremely pragmatic. You know, it's it's not a question of having to eat perfectly all the time. And in fact, he makes a point of reminding us all that nutrition is a field that's perpetually changing and advancing and evolving. So instead, he continues to encourage people to make adjustments, make upgrades, but in a way that really looks like them and in a way that allows for a combination of health as well as joy. And of course, again, pragmatism. So really such a delight to be able to speak with him, and I have no doubt that uh, you will get as much value, if not more, in our conversation than I did in getting the the opportunity to speak with them. One thing to note, as COVID is surging on, we are trying to get creative with regard to the recordings that we do. And this particular recording was done via Zoom. And so there may be a few instances that you detect, uh, you know, a, a drop off of voice We really and truly do everything we can to make sure it remains consistent, and we do as much editing as we can to reduce that, but it is inevitable that there will be some glitches there, and we thank you in advance for your patience on that. So then, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So I'm here with Dr. Yadava. Hello and welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'd love it if you could begin by introducing yourself, uh, maybe a bit of your background and your interests, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So my name is Mirnal Yadava. I am a a general cardiologist and um, have an interest in cardiac imaging and prevention of cardiac disease. Uh, I work at Salem Hospital, and um, I recently moved from OHSU in Portland, where um, I worked in the preventative cardiology clinic and developed an interest in cardiac prevention.
0: What was it that piqued your interest about cardiology particularly?
1: So so I've grown up, Actually, let's rephrase that. Could you ask that question again, please?
0: Sure. What was it about cardiology that um, grabbed your interest?
1: So I found um, cardiology to be um, probably the most fascinating uh, subspecialty of medicine during med school and early training. And I say that because um, I find it very impactful it um, is a subspecialty of medicine that affects all of our lives on a daily or frequent basis. And so by intervening in people's cardiac health, number one, I have, I have the opportunity to make a significant impact, which a lot of other specialties don't afford. And then it's obviously the intellectual aspect of it that just you know called out to me and I found it the most uh, stimulating from that standpoint. So that's kind for of why I find myself in cardiology today.
0: Mm. And you mentioned that, you, it, 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 it sound, maybe I'm mishearing you, but it almost sounded like there was an evolution from, you know, cardiology in general into the realm of prevention in that space, particularly, you know, more specifically. So was that an evolution or did you always have more of an emphasis in terms of your interest in prevention?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good pickup. up. Um, I, I do think there was an evolution, but there was also a basis or a background for why that evolution happened. So I'm originally from India, which you obviously know is a developing country and we suffer from a lot of um, problems, you know, healthcare and such in a primary care level. But within that, I found that um, when in, when cardiology attracted me, there was either the more, um, you know, the aspects that involve more secondary prevention or, you know, these fancy procedures and so on, which are very cool in themselves. But um, when I saw the opportunity to make an impact to a larger number of people and a a larger number of lives, that's where I found preventative measures and preventative cardiology to be the most impactful. And so also in terms of... uh, a cost to output stand from, standpoint from a societal level, I find preventative efforts are um, much more meaningful and have much more yield than some of the other cooler, fancier things that as cardiologists sometimes get involved with. So that I think was part of the basis for how my interest evol- evolved into more preventative uh, spheres of cardiology.
0: Mm, it makes a lot of sense. And when you're in that space, um, what does it look like to be working in preventative cardiology? Like, you know, what is the, like, what role are you playing? Are you primarily being, playing the consultant role where you're telling people, here's how you prevent this, or is it more about creating content or, you know, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, so there's a a lot of different ways um, and different kind of avenues you can approach preventative cardiology to. So one is basically preventative, right at the um, grassroots level, where you encourage and incul- inculcate good habits, um, which is basically dietary practices, exercise, staying away from things we know that are deleterious, like smoking, and so on. So that's right, um, you know, at a very basic level. Then also within the aspects of this is kind of borderline on prevention versus secondary prevention, but also early identification and intervening in mm-hmm. early stages of heart disease or in people who are at high risk of developing heart disease, like those that have a family history of heart disease or have a family history of strokes, high blood pressure. So even sometimes in those patients, uh, while it may not by definition be preventative cardiology, still it's an impactful way of um practicing medicine and, you know, making a change in those people's lives, which could lead to long term, you know, better outcomes and longevity and better health in the long term.
0: Yeah, that makes so it's almost like there's three phases, then there's prevention, there's secondary prevention, and then there's treatment after a diagnosis. Or does that sound about right?
1: That's 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 about right. Um, Secondary prevention, technically, you know, if we we get into the absolute semantics of the matter, mm-hmm. would be basically doing things after the diagnosis is made. Mm-hmm. But uh, that kind of blends into the treatment aspect. But I think there's a gray area in between where basically we're intervening on patients who have early stages of disease. Mm-hmm. So we still um, treat them as um, you know, in a way, primary prevention where we're basically. preventing the further progression of disease. And we're intervening before major events happen. So like heart attacks and strokes. So we're trying to intervene before those so that we don't have to end up, you know, managing those. So there's a little bit of a gray area in between, but a lot of this is semantic. So Mm. um, we can just, you know, kind of look at it as uh, prevention and early intervention as a big bucket of intervention. Gotcha.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Okay, yeah. and you know, when I speak with people about heart disease, for me, I have a sense of what that means because I kind of live and breathe in this space. But I'm I'm always kind of am- surprised. I was gonna say amused by, but you know, it's it's interesting to me how many people will say, "I don't actually know what heart disease is." I what is like if you were to like I know what a cold is. Like I, I feel the sniffles. I have scratchy throat or what have you but what are the equivalent signifiers of heart disease? Like what what are the, like if I were to say, oh, a, ne- a person does have heart disease and now they don't have heart disease. Um, what is it that classifies someone as having a heart disease?
1: Well, that's a good question. And um, heart disease in itself kind of represents a spectrum mm-hmm. and it represents a spectrum in various different disease entities. Mm-hmm. So the most common Uh, form of heart disease and the one that gets probably the most uh, play in media and so on is uh, heart disease related to cholesterol depositing in arteries so that's called coronary artery disease or atherosclerotic vascular disease the number one cause of morbidity in the world heart disease has now overtaken cancer as unfortunately the number one cause of morbidity and mortality that is basically Uh, lives lost Mm. due to what it is so coronary artery disease or cholesterol building up in arteries probably represents the most common but there are other types of heart disease which Mm. are somewhat related but are also very different in some ways so there can be heart rhythm problems Mm. there can be uh, heart muscle weakening due to cholesterol deposition or and also a lot of other causes and so there's different kind of uh, uh, sub sub specialties, so to speak, within cardiology. Now, when you talk about what does it mean to have heart disease, or what does that what, what what the signifiers are, again, this represents a bit of a spectrum. And so the different uh, there are different categorizations for that. So, for example. Uh, Organizations like the WHO and those kind of organizations that oversee public health have even proposed stages Mm. of um, either people at risk leading into people who have established heart disease. And so uh, in their uh, classification, class one is people who have risk factors for heart disease, though they may not have identified or diagnosed heart disease yet so those would be people who have high blood pressure diabetes who are um, users of tobacco and so on and then it comes to seeing you know then the stage 2 is basically having evidence of heart disease stage 3 is where it's advanced heart disease where you're actually seeing structural problems with the heart like heart muscle weakening or problems with valves and so on so again it's a spectrum and uh um, Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times people know that they have heart disease, so to speak, is unfortunately when they have an event like a heart attack or stroke. So the whole purpose of what we're doing here is to try to identify those early phases, whether it be by screening or just, you know, testing or um, just these kind of preemptive measures to prevent that, um, you know, uh, potentially catastrophic event Mm. Yeah, I think is my best explanation of what the whole spectrum of what having heart disease uh, entails.
0: That's super helpful because, you know, I'm thinking, too, it's similar in some respects to, you know, when people talk about classifications of diabetes, you know, pre-diabetes versus, you know, actual diagnosis, et cetera. um you know, I'm thinking, too, there, there was a an analogy someone gave to me once as it relates to when you mentioned cholesterol, because this cholesterol thing has become, mm, it, at least in my experience, a little bit controversial, only in so much as you're starting to have different voices come in and say, oh, cholesterol's not that big a deal. Oh, yes, it's a huge deal and so on. Um The analogy I was given by a fellow educator was it's sort of like, uh, you know, cholesterol behaves a bit like a fireman in the body trying to deal with inflammation. So there's an inflammatory response in the body. Cholesterol is a response to that. And sometimes, you know, unfortunately, there are some people who say, oh, well, every time I see a fire, there's a fireman. So we should just get rid of the fireman. Which is not true. You don't want that, but you also don't want fifteen fire trucks and only one fire hydrant causing a traffic jam, so nothing can get done. So if you have too much blockage, you're you're again, you have a traffic jam. Nobody can put the fire out. Um, Is that a fair uh, comparison or or analogy to be given? Like when I'm, if I use that and were to repeat it to others, is that a fair assessment?
1: I think that's a. It's a fair and um, reasonably amusing uh, <laughs> analogy. So there, I, where you're coming from, and I get the likeness to, um, you know, the whole issue of cholesterol-related heart disease, especially from uh, uh, the standpoint of, um, you know, kind of from a societal standpoint or, like, so to speak, a lay person's standpoint. Um, I'm the first to admit, even as a cardiologist, the science on um, the different aspects of cholesterol and how they affect our bodies and affect our arteries and heart is evolving, and it's kind of like all fields of science where you know the analogy right now would be all the COVID-related information, where every uh, so every every um, little period of time we learn something new, and there are times when we we may even contradict what we thought we knew a few months ago, but that's kind of the way science goes is that you only know as much as you know at that time and you make your best estimates on how to manage that Mm -hmm. so uh cholesterol science and you know that ties into prevention isn't evolving science um if i had a dime for every time my own thought on you know how cholesterol affects the body changes with time i'd be um in a much better financial state (laughs) but um basically the things we know um, as relative fact, um, you know, right now, are that there are some kinds of cholesterol that are in general more harmful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've probably, and I'm sure you've heard of saturated fats and trans fats and those kind of things. We know that by and large, those are uh, more harmful. They lead to higher levels of bad cholesterol in our blood called LDL. And we know that again, by and large, higher cholesterol or LDL levels are associated with more cholesterol deposition in arteries and um, higher risk of heart disease and so on. Now, you have to um, also appreciate that within um, the you know within a big population, different people's metabolism is different, and different people you know they uh, they metabolize cholesterol and fats differently. So it could be that there's an isolated person who has a high LDL cholesterol level in their blood, but their meta- metabolism is such that it doesn't deposit it in the arteries. Mm-hmm. Whereas there may be someone who has low cholesterol levels that does deposit it. So there are always these individual you know, variations, but looking at it from a broad standpoint societal level, we know that in general, for the most part, higher LDL, higher saturated fats and trans fats lead to more cholesterol deposition. Mm-hmm. And so from an individual standpoint, you never know what exactly your body's metabolism is going to do with those numbers. So you have to kind of play according to the overarching rules of you know, cholesterol metabolism and just kind of be careful about those um you know specific aspects
0: yeah uh, i mean and i love to the, the you're talking about science i always know i'm in the presence of a real scientist when they caveat most of the phrases with for now or it depends um, Because because yeah, there was a gentleman who was talking about for example the big bang theory and he said listen it's the best story we've got right now um, and that's Pretty much science to a T. It's it's like perpetual telling of the stories that we can tell to the best of our ability with the data we have streaming in so far, and the willingness to right. adapt and change it is, is kind of paramount.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's in a way, if you want to look at it from an overly optimistic standpoint, that's kind of also adds to the excitement and you know the the, the process of constant learning mm-hmm. um, is at least. From my personal standpoint, is part of the reason that it attracts me to this field.
0: Yeah. Oh, I get that for sure. And you know, you were talking about cholesterol and how the what we consume, you know, what the foods we eat, saturated fats, trans fats, being one example of that, and how it can impact us. Uh, that leads me into sort of the areas of you. Know, given that you do work in preventative cardiology, if someone were to ask you some tips, and I'm sure there's a bunch of people who do. You've probably got, you know, the neural equivalent of a, you know, a button you can push and just put it on autopilot. But when someone asks you, hey, doc, I, what, what would you recommend to me? Let's say I know someone in my family who has heart disease, or I'm worried about it myself, I want to prevent it. Is there a general map you can give me for what I should be eating? and how I should practice nutrition.
1: Yes. So um, to that, the first thing I would actually, before I uh, get to the nutrition aspect, I'd like to preface it by saying that the way I look at prevention is that you have some uh, risk factors that you're born with. For example, if you have a family history of heart attacks, or if you have a family history or a genetic condition causing high cholesterol in you, those are some things you're just born with and you know you get you you basically have to play with the cards you've been dealt so those are the non-modifiable factors but then the there is a complex but um you know recently understood interplay between other modifiable factors which is where we get to um the diet uh, aspect of it and even more broadly than just diet larger um studies and observational data sets have shown that if I were to, as a physician, really simplify it and distill it down for a patient who has that specific question you asked me, Mm -hmm. um, so we can't really change the uh, the non-modifiable factors that were dealt. But by changing the modifiable factors, we can definitely blunt the impact of the other factors we're born with. And Coming back to distilling it down to what I can do, hard kind of, you know, and if you want me to enumerate hard points that we can do, three things. Number one is diet. Number two is exercise. And number three is avoiding tobacco. Mm. Those are the three biggest risk factors from a, you know, gross standpoint that we can work on to ensure long term health and also do that by blunting the effects of genetic factors and family history that we're inheriting. And when it comes to diet, again, it's kind of like the whole cholesterol science where it would seem like it's a constant, and not just seem, it is a constantly moving target, but it would seem like it's kind of turning on its head every couple of years, Mm -hmm. which I, again, am the first person to admit it has a way of doing. Um, But we have some dietary um, practices and some dietary patterns that have been associated with higher heart disease and lower heart disease. Um, talking of that, the biggest, um, you know, kind of um, uh, positive uh, dietary practices that can help are number one, a Mediterranean style diet, mm-hmm. which means that more of our protein comes from leaner. Uh, sources of um, meat such as fish and chicken less so of red meat and um, darker meats more um, replacing servings of carbohydrates and fatty foods with fruits and vegetables Mm -hmm. healthy uh, nuts like almonds and uh, pecans and those kind of things and um, also moving towards a more plant based diet So those are some things that have time and again been proven by numerous studies to be heart healthy. Mm -hmm. There are certain um, specific dietary plans like people are interested in the keto diet or Atkins diet. The science on them is evolving. Mm -hmm. The keto diet has been shown to be excellent at weight loss. There are still some concerns about whether the weight loss is sustainable, which is under study, and whether, you know, it can cause a lot of weight loss, but does it translate into equivalent uh, heart healthy outcomes? Does it reduce heart attacks and um, so on? There are signals that it does, but um, it doesn't have the quality of evidence backing it as the Mediterranean style diet and plant based diet yet. Mm. So I think those are some things that most scientists will also admit are still, um, point, still the facets of diet science that we're learning about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the one way I've uh, had it described to me that I appreciated was this idea of trying to put food in sort of the spectrum of poor, fair, good, better and best. And, mm-hmm. you know, poor, most people know what poor quality food looks like. I mean, I, I have yet to meet any person with any educational background or lack thereof who looked at a Twinkie and said, oh, yeah, totally, 100%. That's absolutely healthy for me. <laughs> um, and then likewise, most people know what best looks like. You know, it's steamed or you know, sustainable, organic, unprocessed local broccoli. or I don't know, something like that. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, we, we, we know that. there are some areas where you kind of people start getting in the weeds of like, Whoa, 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 should I do more of this? What about proteins versus fats versus carbohydrates? How much fiber this. And there are some principles that seem to remain fairly constant. It's like principle number one, if you're eating real food, in other words, food, your great, great grandmother would recognize as a foodstuff you're probably going in the right direction. Uh, You know, number two, if most of those foods came or were grown from a plant, not made in a plant, probably going in the right direction. You know, having fiber in your diet seems to pretty universally be a good thing from fruits and vegetables. So it's like, and much the same way that you described trying to assess someone's risk for heart disease, there's so many variables. It's like there's their family history, there's you know, their lifestyle outside of that family history, like what's their genetic makeup and what are their specific questions and what's their, all of that. And so there's general principles. And then of course you got to kind of customize it to each individual from there. So I imagine that's got to be a source of frustration for you when people say, give me the answer, Dr. Yatava.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I wish I had the answer Mm -hmm. again. Um, I'd be in a very uh, different place if I had the answer but you know I'm glad you brought this point up because I think the whole um, mental process of getting caught up in the weeds too much can also be equally um, you know it can be equally um, deleterious or defeating almost so the one thing that I, I I use in my personal life and I kind of stout um, is that at the end of the day um, as you mentioned there is you know if you use your common sense um, and think about the foods you're eating um, you're you're likely going to have a lot of your answers a lot of your questions answered yourself mm-hmm. and also I'm a firm believer in you have to like you know stick by that principle of moderation and mm-hmm. If, if, if you like having a hamburger, go ahead and have one once a week. This is my personal opinion. This is not, mm-hmm. you know, um, supported by any American Heart Association guidelines. <laughs> but the way I look at it is as a doctor, what I like to do for my patient is one, you know, one of two things make them live longer and make them feel better. And my job is not to give you these really strict kind of guidelines to live your life that it becomes completely onerous and it sucks out all the fun of your life. <laughs> so if you do like to have a nice hamburger, get together with the family, have a really good hamburger and enjoy the heck out of it. Mm. But it's a question of what you get, when you get into patterns of having those kind of foods on a, you know, more regular basis um, or, you know, if you're starting to have that, like, every day and you're getting into patterns where that kind of food is the most easily accessible, so you end up having it most days, that's where I think a little bit of the problems creep in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this—it's uh, a combination of moderation and experimentation. You know, there was a, a food psychologist, his, his term, not mine, uh, who said... You know, when people ask me, well, what about the keto diet or what about this diet? And He's like, most of the time I tell him, I mean, if you're really that interested, give it a try. Report back. How, How do you feel? What happened to your biometrics? What happened to your energy? How well did you sleep that night? Like your body is a pretty fair barometer. It will tell you when you're doing something it doesn't like. So, you know, if you have that combination of moderation as in, you know, that common sense capacity. And then you blend that with the spirit of experimentation as in like, well, what am I doing and what am I getting? It provides you a lot of data.
1: I, you know, at the cost of sounding corny, John Mayer may have said it right when he said that your body's a wonderland.
0: (laughs) I love that.
1: He was making as profound a statement as he was. Yeah.
0: Well said. I agree. (laughs) Would you say that there's a similar quality to the, the kinds of conversations you have regarding exercise? Because I know that was the second of the three big pillars. Is there a, a similar, like, people now are all about hit training. Oh, no, 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 no. 10,000 steps. Oh, actually, no, no, no. Just always be doing yoga. <laughs> Is it a similar element there, too, where it's a, you know, common sense meets moderation?
1: There is, there is. And again, I think it's a function of the fact that we're still learning about the complex interplay these different factors have with each other. Mm -hmm. So um, to quote from the uh, Heart Association guidelines, it's basically what they recommend is 150 minutes a week of moderate uh, level aerobic exercise or 75 minutes a week of high intensity Mm Uh, They also recommend resistance training, which would be weights and so on. That's more related to long-term bone health rather than heart health in particular. So those are the guidelines. But again, um, more than focusing, so more than kind of taking them as complete dictum, um, what I would say is they basically provide you a general uh, blueprint for what kind of exercises are good for you. And then you basically take those and incorporate into your own life and see what you find most, you know, the, the, the regime you can be most compliant with and the one that you enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. In my particular case, I, you know, to be honest, I'm not a fan of going into the gym, but I love biking and skiing and those kind of things. So it's just about finding what you enjoy And then there are some relative benefits of different forms of exercise in terms of uh, yoga versus, you know, high intensity. Those are all very specific kind of um, differences. And it would be a little bit beyond the scope of our talk today. We kind of, you know, delve too far into that. But I think, again, common sense and moderation. The goal is basically to get you, you know, spending a decent amount of time on some kind of doing some kind of aerobic exercises and I define that as where your heart rate gets up mm-hmm. to a point where while you're doing it you can get only two to three words out of your mouth at one time because you're breathing fast mm-hmm. so it's all going on a jog or going a quick walk with say your partner or someone and you get talking while you're doing on a jog and you, sh- you get only like a word or two out between breaths because you're breathing fast that's kind of the right level of acting Activity and doing that about thirty minutes, five days a week, mm-hmm. I think is a very good kind of starting point uh, for what's you know good for you exercise wise from the heart standpoint.
0: Mm, yeah. Well, and it's, when you were talking about kind of that common sense aspect too, you know, it, it occurs to me that children—you never have to tell a kid, "All right, junior, it's time to get your exercise." Well, maybe you do at some age, you know, once video games or stuff comes online. But I just mean it, kids don't think in terms of I now I must exercise and yet they have all this energy and they're expending it in all of these ways they're fidgeting they're they're running they're playing hide and seek they're you know going in the monkey bars and it's it's sort of like they're just naturally kind of going with the flow of their bodies be like I I have energy I'm gonna go use it now um and it's sort of trying to encourage people to facilitate the relationship with movement like that you know what's the best exercise that you can do the one you will do
1: (laughs) That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. This has, this is this has the potential of going into a completely tangential philosophical argument about how modern day life has kind of you know changed um, what we do and so on. And that's fair. I mean, if you still had to go out hunt for your food, you'd be getting just you'd be getting more than enough exercise. You wouldn't have to come to a cardiologist to know that you need to get exercise. So <laughs> it's just one of those things. We live in a society that we basically molded very specifically ourselves. So now we have to fit within it mm-hmm. uh, an exercise program of our own creation that kind of, you know, fits into that bigger picture. So, um, yeah, I mean, evolutionarily, like when you're a kid or evolutionary, yeah. I don't think you ever had to worry about it versus yoga. It was just being alive would get you enough exercise. Yeah.
0: And I- You know, and speaking of when we were mentioned, the mention of yoga had my brain going into this. I I noticed that you you mentioned so there's nutrition, nutrition, exercise, and uh, tobacco cessation. You didn't mention either stress or sleep, and I imagine the primary reason is you have to pick three and you got to crowd out some of them somewhere. Uh, But do you think either of those has a uh, is weighted heavily as it relates to heart disease, or are they kind of secondary, pretty far below diet and exercise? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, uh, so to answer your question, they're definitely very, um, you know, directly correlated to heart health. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a couple of reasons why three, um, you know, specifics that I mentioned have kind of been uh, highlighted in um, bigger, you know, observational trials and recommendations. One is... Um, Stress levels are a little bit of a harder um, kind of uh, parameter to measure. So it's hard for someone, you know, like for an association or, or organization to say that, you know, like you need to keep your stress below an X amount or Y amount. Um, sleep, similarly, it's very, um, there's, there's huge inter-person variation more sleep than others and so on and so forth and the last thing is um when these big organization associations want to highlight modifiable factors they do obviously go for the 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 ones that had the biggest impact and the one that ones that are the most modifiable so that's why i think they chose those those three um but sleep and uh stress definitely have a big role to play Uh, we know that poor sleep quality poor um, quantity of sleep pressure, they affect your heart rate, they affect how revved up your uh, sympathetic nervous system, which is basically the, the, the nervous system that increases your adrenaline and you know gets you more excited and those kind of things. It revs all of those up, and all of those have been shown in the long term. If you have those sustained effects, they can definitely lead to uh, heart disease and uh, disease of the vessels in the long term. So those are definitely things that we need to uh, work on uh, on an individual level and should definitely not lose importance and lose focus on.
0: Yeah, that's helpful to hear. And it's also interesting, I mean, to me at least, if you're looking at nutrition and exercise, those also have a huge influence on the quality of sleep you'll likely get. And so it kind of dominoes out. So I can still see why those would be the three primary elements that you'd bring to the table.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Are there any questions that I wasn't smart enough or knowledgeable enough to ask that you're thinking now that you like you would bring in a conversation with a patient that again, you're, you're like, you didn't ask this, but this is something I would want any person to know who might be listening to this conversation.
1: Yeah. So, um, as I said, so one of my biggest, um, uh, points of, uh, recommendation is would be as I've already said uh, in our uh, conversation so far is to um, just be conscientious about your lifestyle Mm -hmm. and um, be uh, intentional and knowledgeable about what you're, you know, either in terms of food or exercise doing or habits such as tobacco and alcohol and so on. Um, And a lot of our basic common sense instincts we often kind of um, ignore in, you know, the pursuit of our daily life and so on. And a, lot of, um, and a lot of this is where we can't blame ourselves, or let me rephrase that, a lot of this is a function of society we live in um, as a result of, you know, America being the absolute, um, you know, top of like the processed food, uh, industry and a lot of the food we've been given and the amount of sugar and carbohydrates that you know kind of creeps into our food without us knowing and so on so a lot of that is function of that um, but again as you would mentioned and uh, I would echoed earlier in this conversation you know it's common sense and looking at what you know like as you said if your grandmother had that available to her and was eating it's probably you know um, reflects a healthier source of uh, nutrition. Uh, the other couple of things that I'd like to get out there is, um, it's a it's a fair question by uh, a person you know, just person visiting their primary care doctor who's wondering about heart health. Is at what point should I see a cardiologist, or should I visit with a cardiologist? And uh, so the obvious uh, deference there, I would is to the primary care doctor if they feel you need to see a cardiologist probably a reason for it but some of the other things is I find um, you should probably have a slightly lower threshold to go and see a cardiologist if you do have a family history of heart disease Mm -hmm. which is basically you have a first degree relative uh, your parents or sibling who had um, you know either developed early heart disease in their 40s 50s or you know, unfortunately had a heart attack in their early life, those are high-risk features where you should, you know, come in to see a cardiologist. Um, Factors such as as having diabetes and high blood pressure that's hard to control uh, would be other reasons that you want to, you know, just be kind of air on the side of caution and involve a cardiologist in your care earlier rather than later. Mm. And then apart from these, um, you know, you'd probably never be... faulted or mistaken to get a cardiologist's opinion just in terms of primary prevention, just, you know, to see if I'm doing everything right. Mm -hmm. But um, those are some of the things where I do think it's worthwhile to kind of escalate your care and, you know, uh, talk to your primary care doctor about whether seeing a cardiologist may be uh, worthwhile.
0: Ah, so yeah, I was just going to ask if there was a some kind of a marker for someone who is sort of like, hmm, well, maybe I should recruit support from a cardiologist or explore that option. Uh, if maybe there was an age where that becomes something to keep an eye on or anything. But it sounds like it's the the primary element there would be a conversation with your primary care physician. And that would be potentially someone who would b- have some discernment with yeah, in your case, in the circumstances you're in right now, I do think it might be helpful versus, eh, you're 23 and you're fine, talk to me in 10 years, or it would be the primary care physician who'd make that call?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, I also have to say that, like, you know, the, the, the majority, the predominance of primary care physicians do an excellent job of managing cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, and so on. And in a lot of cases, these um, conditions, these chronic conditions are more in their wheelhouse than a lot of other physicians. So I have no reservations about them having, you know, complete command over these conditions and deferring to their, uh, you know, professional opinion about whether you, want, you need to see a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. So I definitely uh, believe that's fair. But I'm just, uh, when I when I say that, you know, these particular high-risk conditions are reasons where you uh, would potentially want to see a cardiologist, I could possibly rephrase that saying that, you know, if you have any of these conditions, you should make that known to your primary care doctor. Mm-hmm. Make sure the primary care doctor is aware of those things and then um, have a shared uh, decision after discussing with your doctor about whether their primary care physician is comfortable taking care of those conditions or whether they feel like, you know, getting an outside opinion may be worthwhile.
0: Mm, that makes, yeah, I absolutely get that. That's helpful. Yep. What is a question you wish more patients asked you?
1: Hmm. That is a good question. <laughs> so let's see. Um, we. I may have to take a second think about this.
0: Take your time. And you're also allowed to say, "Oh."
1: I think, um, like, when one of the th- the things I found. Um, You know, the most helpful is when these bigger observational trials, Mm -hmm. um, or sorry, observational studies um, put out that, you know, these are the big modifiable factors. Mm -hmm. I think they've done a big service to the general public in that um, they've taken away from uh people getting into the weeds about you know like absolute minutiae and kind of focusing on the big impactful things that you know we need to do so i think whenever a patient asks me is like you know can you delineate like on a single hand the number of things you know can you identify uh, firm isolated things that we should do that i can do to improve my heart health and prevent uh, issues in the long term i find that um you know, the fact that these associations have identified these big, very firm and, you know, distinct uh, areas of work, I find that helpful. Um, but, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. I, I'll have to say, I, I can't think of what the best question mm-hmm. would be that I, I don't get often enough, uh-huh. that I wish I got more. I, I can't say I, I can identify that exactly at this time.
0: It's almost like it's not the, the type of question, but the relationship that the, the patient has with the information. So if they're coming to you and saying, hey, I want to keep this nice, clean and simple, and I want it to be something I can implement. There's a kind of joy there because then it feels like, all right, let's go. Let's have a conversation versus those questions where it's like... So I've heard about alfalfa sprouts. Should I be eating more specifically alfalfa sprouts or acai or, you know, kale or whatever? And it's like, okay, <laughs> sure. Let's All right, we're going keto. All right, let's go there. Um, so it's like that when you're in the presence of someone who's really just looking at it from a place of how do we simplify this and make this something that I can, I can do something with? Uh, that's an area you like to play in.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where if you can identify specific things, I mean, everyone, you know, wants, if, if as a patient you can have, you know, a clear checklist of clearly check markable items that you can do and that ensures good health, you know, that's ideal. So it helps provide that. But, you know, to your question about um, when you asked me about, you know, patients asking me about, Um, things that um, are either questions I'd like to hear more or are questions that come up often Um, a couple of points that come to mind is number one is um, I've had patients who say that you know I've got diabetes, I've got a strong family history, I've got you know I've been dealt crummy genetic cards so to speak so um, does it really matter If I, you know, like, uh, it's this assumption that you know you've you've been dealt a crummy hand and you're kind of subscribed to a life of heart disease and those kind of things, and whether making changes to your diet and so on affect are going to make a significant effect. So I think that's one question. And then the second question, that again, is a very very common uh, question and a common clinical scenario that I get is people come to me and say their blood pressure is elevated and they say that oh my blood pressure has always been elevated so that you know the assumption is so that's okay for me that's my normal or that my cholesterol has always been through the charts and you know like i'm in my 50s and i'm okay that the, the argument there is a little bit flawed and we know that from data and that you know the fact that your blood pressure has been high uh, all your life doesn't make it okay if anything it tells me that your arteries and your blood vessels have been working against a high blood pressure for a long period of time and if anything they may have already you know uh, sustained effects from that. So if anything it makes me want to be more um, aggressive in trying to get it lower to basically kind of uh, null whatever effects or blunt whatever effects uh, that abnormal parameter has already had And similar thing with cholesterol. We know that people who have high cholesterol can even as early in their late childhood years or teens start depositing cholesterol in their arteries.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So just saying that you're in your 40s and 50s and you've had high cholesterol all your life, it doesn't necessarily, it actually not even necessarily, but it doesn't argue towards your point of, you know, that doing nothing is going to help. It's more argues that, you know, now we need to get really more aggressive to try to blunt whatever ill effects that parameter has had in the years leading up to it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a common question and common misconception that I uh, encounter.
0: Yeah, I could see that. And it it really seems to circle nicely back to that concept of moderation again. So there are some patients, it sounds like, who are perhaps going too far into the weeds. Uh, I'm... I'm reluctant to use the word neurotic, but you know that going so far to the extreme of of um, preoccupation that you almost have to coach them back off the ledge and say it's not your fault. Some of this you were born with. If you n- desperately need a hamburger, you can have one. Enjoy. You know, it, I don't want you feeling like we're going to be caging you into a box where you're, the rest of your life will be miserable. And then there are those others folks who are perhaps a little too laissez-faire of like "Eh, I've always had this problem it's never an issue where in those relationships it's more about kind of "Mm, no you perhaps need to be a bit more vigilant Uh, you know so some people are so vigilant that you're trying to ease their suffering and calm it down others are not vigilant enough and you're trying to kind of kick up the heat a notch so that they can do something about what could evolve into an increasingly challenging uh, health status.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's kind of the spectrum of, uh, you know, all, us all being different and have different personalities. And some people are more, you know, uptight. Some people are a little bit overly relaxed. <laughs> and that's that's part of the fun of, you know, interacting with different groups of people and kind of figuring out what's best for each person. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the examples of either kind I see on a frequent basis. I see that person who... Has high blood pressure, and they've been told they have high blood pressure. So they now they now absolutely absolutely um, you know kind of obsessive about it. So they actually check their blood pressure multiple times over, mm-hmm. and the anxiety of doing that they get worked <laughs> up, resulting in higher blood pressures. So there is uh, there is such a thing as uh, being a little bit you know over vigilant or getting a li- little bit. Um, over-aggressive about Mm self-monitoring, but um, yeah, there's definitely the absolute opposite end of that spectrum as well, and that probably comprises a larger number of people where, you know, people who kind of, especially in their younger years, take a lot of their health for granted and, you know, kind of take a lot of their well-being for granted and don't pay enough attention to uh, healthy practices. So, yeah, again, probably just kind of trend towards the middle path and those two, um, you know, kind of personality types.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know we're getting close to time and I want to be sure that I respect yours, but uh, I, I want to make sure and say how much I appreciate your having spent this time with me and just what a wealth of information you are and how grateful I am that this is going to be something that others get to have access to.
1: Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for uh, having me on this platform.
0: Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right.